Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. COVID cases rising and even causing problems for Democrats in their fight for voting rights. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com and back from assignment. Oh, who are we kidding? He was taking some time off and he deserved it. Houston Chronicle political writer Jeremy Wallace. How are you, sir? I am fresh from the mountains of Washington State and ready to go. <laughs> Mount Rainier? Was it Mount yes. Rainier? Mount Rainier. Awesome. Yeah, I saw your post on social media. I think uh, his phone was off. He was not paying attention to any of this in the week before this one, which he absolutely deserved. We will absolutely talk about uh, what's going on in the latest in the standoff with the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, the Republicans who have locked themselves in Austin and the Democrats who are basically locking themselves in Washington. And there may be some discussions happening between some of the Democrats and some of the Republicans back here in Texas, uh, but the degree to which that's happening and the number of Democrats who are willing to talk to the Republicans, that's all in question. We'll get to that. But first, I saw you tweeting, Jeremy, because you're back on the job. You're back on deck. You were talking about the rising cases of COVID. This is happening in Texas and around the country. The Delta variant is something we're dealing now with COVID-19. Um, and in Texas, we have seen a surge just like in other places, right? Well, absolutely. That uh, you know, The hospitalization number has always been the key. That shows you like where the strain really is. And you, you think about all those, you know, frontline hospital workers, you know, those nurses and doctors who, you know, just this is a perpetual nightmare that just keeps re you know, re, you know, regenerating and creating such stress there. But, but, you know, so how bad has it been? The hospitalizations just in the last week are up 75% in Texas. Uh, we're, we're at almost 4,000 hospitalizations right now. And you got to go back to uh, St. Patrick's Day, the last time we were in this range. Uh, that was before most Texans had access to, you know, COVID-19 vaccinations, of course. Uh, but so we're up 75% from the last week. And just since the start of the month, we're up 145% on hospitalizations in Texas. And some of the worst hit areas right now are around the College Station area, uh, around Waco, uh, around uh, Colleen, you know, those areas all have like really bad numbers right now. Uh, right now, there's no available ICU beds in the College Station Hospital region. Uh, and Waco has only uh, like, I think they had three ICU beds reported available for the entire region uh, right now in Waco. So for those college students who would be going back to say Baylor or Texas A&M, you kind of have to wonder, it's like, Nobody better get hurt because there's just no place to put anybody, you know, not just for COVID, but if you get hurt in anything else, there's just no hospital space there in the ICUs. Will there be any more government mandates, government restrictions from the state of Texas? Governor Greg Abbott was asked about that by Chris Gutierrez on KPRC television channel two in Houston. And the specific question was asked, are the mask mandates going to come back? 
So first, let's talk about the, the, the medical component of it. The medical component, as we all know, uh, is that one of the things that dramatically reduces, if not eliminates, uh, the possibility of, of getting COVID, even getting the Delta variant of COVID, is getting a vaccine. And so the first thing that we are doing is we, are, we the state, the Department of State Health Services, as well as the chief of the Texas Division of Emergency Management, uh, are working with local officials across the state of Texas to ensure that everyone has plentiful supplies of the vaccine so that anybody who wants the vaccine will be able to get the vaccine. Uh, then the second thing with, in direct response to your question, and that is uh, there will be no mass mandate uh, imposed. And the reasons for that are very clear. And that is uh, there are so many people uh, who have immunities uh, to COVID, whether it be through the vaccination, whether it be through their own exposure and their recovery from it, uh, which would be acquired immunity. Uh, and that is it would be inappropriate to require people who already have immunity to uh, wear a mask. Uh, but also what we know, Chris, is this, and that is everyone watching the show, everyone in the state of Texas, as well as the United States, they know exactly uh, what the standards are, what practices uh, sure. they want to adopt to help protect themselves. Uh, and so there's no more time for government mandates. This is time for individual responsibility, period. Now, the vaccination rates, and he mentioned vaccines there and how many people are now already immune. But the vaccine rates, as far as I can tell, Jeremy, they're not worth bragging about in Texas. No, that's definitely not the case. We are way low compared to the big states, for sure. We're trailing California, Florida, and New York in vaccination rates. And you know some of those areas I was talking about in Texas that are getting overwhelmed in the hospitals or at least getting hit pretty hard, it's like you have vaccination rates in the clean area at 27% of people are vaccinated. You know, that is like unbelievable when you consider, you know, in some of the cities like Austin, you're in the 70s, you know, 70% of people are getting vaccinated. And so you see this disparity and it shows you why so many people in the cities had to drive out into the rural parts of Texas to get vaccinations because nobody in the rural areas were using those their share of vaccinations. Right. So the, you can see now why we all had like there were no vaccinations in Austin, so everybody went out into surrounding communities to get their shots. I remember at that time there were a lot of people debating whether it was appropriate to go into other areas and use the vaccines that had been allocated for those areas. Uh, but it seemed pretty clear to, to me and to a lot of people uh, that if they were just going to go to waste, then why not use them? Because, of course, they do have a shelf life, right? At, at some point they were just throwing a bunch of that stuff in the trash. Yep. Uh, and there is a political dynamic to that. Some of the places that you named, and let's just say it outright, those places that trend more blue, more democratic, people are getting the vaccine uh, in you know big numbers. Yep. And in the areas where they voted uh, for President Trump, probably 70% or more, you could almost track the, the numbers you just said. It would be around 30% of people who had been vaccinated. That means the people who were uh, you know probably uh, casting their ballot for exclusively Republicans, including President Trump, we're refusing to get the vaccine. Over the course of the last year, we have seen the story go from people demanding to be able to get the vaccine and, and for you know seeing these long lines and, and people trying to get uh, inoculated. Uh, and then at some point, we had plenty of vaccines and the, you know, the whole story has shifted to trying to get them to take them. And did you notice over the last week, there was a big story nationally, and you saw it in Texas as well, some of the folks on the right including not just politicians like Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, uh, Sean Hannity on Fox News Channel. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, a lot of these folks who have been you know, spreading a message that is sort of anti-vaccine, in some cases is very anti-vaccine, and suddenly they're saying everybody needs to get the vaccine uh, and, and people need to uh, take COVID very seriously. 
Huge shift. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it, it, it's it's good to see some of the areas in Texas that were hard hit before. Uh, if you look down, you know, remember, it, you know, during the height of you know COVID nineteen, the hospitalization numbers in places like Laredo and Hidalgo County and Cameron County, all along the border, were really high. But you see, the vaccination rates in those areas are great. You know, people are getting vaccinated. Uh, they're not, they clearly, you know, saw the damage it can do uh, and have been far more aggressive in getting vaccinated than, like you mentioned, and some of these areas you know, around Waco and Colleen and College Station. You just wonder if those folks you know, would get vaccinated, they, you know, they'd be saving themselves. Yeah, you know, we've lost a thousand Texans uh, just since June 1st, uh, almost a thousand Texans, you know, to COVID-19. You know, think about that. Like with all these people who were already getting vaccinated, we're still losing people because just not enough people are vaccinated. There have been some heartbreaking stories about uh, medical professionals uh, you know, treating people who have COVID-19. Uh, they're getting ready to intubate them. You know, they're, they're, they're going to be on the ventilator. And the last thing some of the people say before they can't speak anymore is that they wish they could get vaccinated. And the doctor will tell them, well, it's too late for that right now. So get the vaccine. The other thing that we have learned in the course of all this coverage over the last few weeks uh, really has been that for those people who test positive for COVID-19, if they're fully vaccinated, they'll probably get what seems like a cold. It it won't be that bad. This this is what you would expect. That would be the vaccine working, even if you have uh, the Delta variant, which they're talking about. And there is also the fact that if you're not getting vaccinated, you are a, and you're part of a, a giant Petri dish right, for, a, for other variants right, to, to, to come out and harm the other people who went out of their way to get vaccinated. So I mentioned that this has been a problem, a challenge for the Democrats from Texas who are in Washington, who are trying to uh, block this elections legislation, which we talked about ad nauseum the last few shows here. And we're going to talk about it again. Uh, but first off, we did get this reporting tip from one of the House Republicans in Washington, you know, Representative Ronnie Jackson. He's a Republican from West Texas. He was also the White House physician, right, under Presidents Trump and Obama. And uh, Jackson was weighing in on the fact that some of the Texas House Democrats who went to Washington two weeks ago, and we're now, by the way, we're entering the second half of the special session in Austin that they're trying to kill as they try to uh, stave off this elections legislation. Well, Jackson said the media is falling down on the job because we haven't been reporting the fact that several of these House Democrats have tested positive for COVID-19. I was just going to chime in and say, I think that you as a press have a responsibility to ask questions of the Democrats as well. How many of the Democrats are willing to say whether or not they've been vaccinated? And what about the Texas delegation from the from the Texas House that came here? Well, they've said that, including the, the six that tested positive. Do we have any evidence of that? I highly doubt that those six people were all vaccinated and tested positive for this virus. So you guys need to hold their feet to the fire. Well, I'm just telling you, they were up here. They've already they've, they stood right here and gave a brief and they've spread it to the speaker's office. They spread it to the White House. And there's literally nothing coming from the mainstream media about that. And it's very hypocritical. I'm trying to think of any mainstream outlet that has not covered the fact that Texas Democrats in Washington have tested positive for COVID-19. Now, why is he saying all that, Jeremy? Here's why. Because when U.S. House Republicans have been asked if they're vaccinated, 
many of them won't answer the question. Correct. They'll say, that's none of your business. Almost every Democrat will say that they have been vaccinated. And this goes right back to what we were talking about at first, which is in these Democratic areas, Austin, Houston, Dallas County, go up to uh, you know Tarrant County, which is trending more toward Democrats now, even though you have office holders at the countywide level who are Republicans. Uh, but in these urban areas, and areas that are represented almost exclusively by Democrats, the vaccination rates are higher. In those areas where Republicans are representing the areas, it's the opposite. The vac vaccination rates are low. Do you think it might make a difference if the elected representatives of those people were proudly out there saying, I'm vaccinated and you should be vaccinated too? There comes a point where these folks have to lead on the issue if they want people in their communities to reflect uh, you know, their behavior to reflect, uh, you know, what is the what the health uh, folks are telling us is the right thing to do. Yeah, exactly. And Ronnie Jackson saying that, you know, the mainstream media is hiding <laughs> this information. It's like, yeah, we, we, we hit it on the front page of the Houston Chronicle, the San Antonio <laughs> Express, the Beaumont yeah, right. Enterprise. It's like we can go down uh -huh. down the list here. It's like it was on the front pages everywhere. And it's been asked at every press conference that I've been on with mm -hmm. the House Democrats. You know, we've asked right. them over and over again. I talked to Trey Martinez Fisher, the state representative from San Antonio. You know, he has COVID. Now, he's one of the ones who tested positive and like i talked to him about it you know what's happening you know he's been vaccinated but he has like he's you know popping tylenol and it's like trying to you know keep his symptoms down but you know again the vaccine doesn't mean you're impervious to ever getting you know covid19 people need mm -hmm. to remember that it's like it all it, what it does is it prevents you uh from getting you know the the symptoms that will put you in the hospital right from generally. getting very sick yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. And and that's, you know, and you know, so my ability to be a talk to some of these representatives who have COVID-19 or tested positive, they're they're not doing nearly as bad as you would if you didn't have the shot. You know, that's what it was all about. You know, keeping keeping people out of the hospitals, which now we're not doing such a great job of once again. So the Democrats are keeping up their push on the voting rights uh, fight. Uh, they say that the elections bills being pushed by Republicans in Austin uh, are in, would infringe on the rights of especially minority communities to exercise the franchise. Representative Sinfronia Thompson, uh, who's a legendary uh, lawmaker respected by Republicans and Democrats, has been in the Texas House for decades. She says that if the Speaker of the House or the governor want to send police to come round her up, then they ought to do it. Have we done enough? Right. Have yes. we paid the price enough? Yes. What is it going to take for us to be able to be Americans in this country? Mm. I am an American and I'm going to vote without somebody infringing upon my rights and the rights of my constituents. And I'll stay in the fight here today for it. I'll stand in the fight for it. I tell you, I can't fight no more. Yes. Because I'm tired of people picking on us for no reason. Yeah. We are Americans and we are proud Americans and we deserve the same rights and respects and the same considerations that everybody has. Yeah. And I'm going to fight until we get it. I'm not going to be a hostage. If they want to arrest me, bring it on.
doesn't sound in the mood to compromise on what's in this elections legislation, Jeremy. Now, Texas House GOP Chairman Jim Murphy from Houston says one of the proposals that can't move forward right now because the Democrats are denying quorum in the Texas House is a proposal that would give retired teachers a 13th check every year instead of the 12 for each month that they get right now. He's making the point that the special session agenda isn't only focused on elections legislation. The way to think about that, that's like an 8% raise, you get 12 checks. And so that's a significant boost of income to teachers who've not had an increase in 17 years. And never mind the fact that a bill to do that did not pass in the regular session of the legislature. In fact, it uh, died in the House in the Calendars Committee, which is chaired by a Republican from Lubbock named Dustin Burroughs. Republicans say that there wasn't necessarily money in the budget to do it during the regular session and that the revised revenue estimate from the comptroller means that they do have enough cash to do it now, so they would like to move forward with that. I'm trying to figure out, Jeremy, whether the arguments from the Democrats are sticking here uh, with with people out there about the right to vote being infringed upon by Republicans who want to you know pass something to placate their supporters and the supporters of uh, former President Trump, or whether the Republican arguments are sticking that you know the Democrats are holding up uh, state government's business by being in Washington, and so things like a thirteenth check for teachers, bail reform, and some of these other things are not able to pass either. Right now, it sounds like a bunch of just noise to people, I think. I, I'm not sure that either one of them is really resonating with folks out there. Yeah, certainly not on a wide, you know, across Texas type thing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so I can see, like, you know, both of them getting some benefit, uh, head, you know, within their own bases of support. You know, clearly, you know, within the hardcore base of the Democratic Party, they're getting nothing but you know, applause for what they're doing by, you know, being in D.C. Uh, and same thing with the Republicans. They're getting applause for like, hey, we're trying to push these tax, you know, you know, cuts and or, or, you know, property tax relief, but we can't do it because of those stinking Democrats. You know, that plays pretty well within the Republican ranks. But does that affect, you know, all the Texans in the middle? Not so sure about that. We've talked a lot about the House Democrats, the fact that they are in a hotel that's not a glamorous hotel in Washington, Jeremy. They're at the Plaza. Are you familiar with that one? Yes. The Washington Plaza. I've stared I clear of out, it in the past. <laughs> <laughs> I pointed out last week that there's not even a bar in the lobby. So it's not like this is some five-star resort that they're in. Uh, so that's the House Democrats. What about the Senate Democrats? Uh, all of the last week, the Senate was passing bills because they had a quorum in the Texas Senate uh, because there were four senators who were Democrats who stayed in Austin while nine of them went to Washington. Well, all of them came back to Austin after the Senate had concluded its business. On the Senate side, they've passed all the bills that Governor Abbott has asked them to pass at this point. That's uh, the point that Lieutenant Governor Patrick has made. Uh, the Senate Democratic Caucus Chair, Carol Alvarado from Houston, said that some of them went to D.C. That's true, but now they're all back here to bring the fight to the Texas Capitol. Despite our best efforts, this bill continues to make it troublesome for our disabled, for our seniors, allows untrained partisan poll watchers to bully, profile, and invade voters' privacy. It bans options that make it easier to vote for working class, like doing away with the 24-hour voting 
and the drive-through voting. It makes it harder to assist the elderly and disabled, and it does not allow for online voter registration. Now more than ever, as a caucus, we're here to uphold that every promise, not just a promise for certain people, but a promise to all people that we stand for making it easier at the ballot box, and we will continue to take this fight on. Senator John Whitmire is the dean of the Senate. He said Governor Abbott should meet with all the stakeholders on this, including the Democratic legislators, not just other Republicans and Fox News hosts and people like that. You have a responsibility to represent our constituents as well as others. I have worked under seven governors. The power of the governor's office is great. In 78, as a young state rep, I didn't want to do something. I didn't want to lower the speed limit because the federal government said you will or you'll lose your federal funding. I thought I was representing my district by saying no. Dolph Briscoe called me into his office. He called other House members. We heard each other's views. We came together with a solution. Governor Abbott, you haven't had one Democratic senator in your office. You spent more time with the governor of Florida than you have these honorable members of the Senate and the House. To break quorum as the House has, to go to Washington as these senators have done, is part of the legislative process. Those of us here on the floor last week fought as best we could to represent our districts. We actually opposed one of our Senate colleagues' proposals. I still think Senator Lucio's bill's bad. We fought and were effective on the Senate floor while our colleagues were fighting and talking to the national leadership. So he's saying it's a fight in Austin and in Washington simultaneously. And here's a question that has come up, Jeremy, with the House members breaking quorum. Will the senators do that as well? Because they can break quorum. In fact, it's easier for them to break quorum. Only 11 people have to leave the Capitol on the Senate side for them to not be able to do business. Well, Whitmire says all options are on the table. We had a two-front war. We will keep all of our options open as we go forward. But we cannot continue to divide this state by parties. We're all in this together. During a news conference of his own, right after the Democrats spoke, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick tried to, and I think this is fair, Jeremy, you you watched it as well. I thought he tried to take the temperature down a little bit, tried to turn turn that thermostat down a little, although he keeps up some of the same rhetoric as usual. But I didn't hear him yelling at people, at least not as much. He raised his voice a a few times. He said that he would never bring a proposal forward that would discriminate against anybody. And he can't believe that anybody like those Democrats would be saying that. I'm personally offended by it. If you want to disagree with the bill, disagree with the bill. If you don't want to be divisive, as they said they don't want to be, then don't use phrases and terms like that. That just incites incites people to think things that aren't true. So the irony detector is starting to pick up a little bit. Lieutenant Governor Patrick doesn't want to see people be divisive. He doesn't want anybody to be inciting anyone, as we have covered over and over again. 
Patrick continues to argue that Texas election laws already rock. They're already great because turnout has gone up amid secure elections. Uh, Listen, here, here he is saying this once again, and it sounds a lot like exactly what he said at previous news conferences. Do you know that in 2011 when we passed voter ID, which Democrats are still saying is bad, some of them alluded to it here on the, at the podium, do you know that we've increased voting turnout in Texas more than any other state in the country? Up over 40%. Did you hear any of them say that when they were here? Have you heard any Democrats say that anywhere? But those are the facts. Would you all print that at least once? Because I don't even read it in anything I see in print. Maybe once I've seen it. We lead the country in increasing vote in Texas. When you start with one of the worst turnout rates in the whole country, turning, you know, increasing your percentage is maybe not as great a feat as it would be if you had a higher turnout to start with. Uh, but you heard the irony detector start to pick up earlier. Now, let's just break the irony detector now. Patrick says it's the Democrats who are being divisive, allowing for Washington-style politics to manifest at the Texas Capitol. Look, we've always had a great relationship in the Senate in a bipartisan manner. I'm obviously a conservative. We're a conservative party. We're a conservative state. But the majority of what we do is bipartisan. And we do work well together. All the people that were up here, I just, I worry that Washington is creeping into their party in Texas. See, it's divisive in Washington. It hasn't been divisive here, and I don't want to see that happen. I mean, if they want to go to Washington, that's up to them. They talk about disenfranchised voters. The voters who were disenfranchised were their own voters because they weren't here in the Capitol last week. But that's up to them. We still had a quorum. But if they really do want to solve this issue, one, let's drop this Jim Crow 2.0 rhetoric. It's offensive. It's tough to sit down and negotiate with someone when you're basically calling them a racist. Okay? So to the Democrats, why don't you knock that off? Number two, quit talking about voter restriction and voter suppression. This bill is not about that. They know it. If there's some issues they want to tweak and fix, sit down at the table. We're willing to listen. He also said once again that the Texas House is where proposals were added to Senate Bill 7 during the regular session to do things like overturning elections by a judge with no evidence of voter fraud and cracking down on the souls to the polls events that happen in the African-American community. But he doesn't want anybody to accuse him of being racist, even though. Uh, If you look at the evidence from the regular session, it looks like Senate leadership, uh, that they were the ones who ended up putting that that language into the bill. Um, I think that there's not a lot of trust here. He's still pointing the finger at the House for some of the worst things that ended up in Senate Bill 7. They point the finger back at him. Uh, We have documented at quorumreport.com what really does look like a trail of evidence back to the Senate on that. But regardless, I haven't seen where there was this just level of distrust between the Texas House and the Texas Senate. And you have the Speaker of the House, Dade Phelan, trying to do a few things to try to lure back the Democrats from Washington. He wants them to be back at the table working on this elections legislation and other things as well. He did some things like strip one of the Democrats of a leadership position. 
He sent his own private plane to, to bring them back, which some folks saw as, you know, sort of a little stunt. But, hey, at least you could also say it's a it's an olive branch trying to do something. Like, hey, ride back with us. You had Miller Lite on the way there. We're going to stock this plane with Lone Star and Shiner. Come on back to Austin. Um, the speaker also uh, talked about the per diem, uh, those payments that the lawmakers uh, get uh, for being in special session, where some of the Democrats are taking those in, uh, while they're in Washington. Some of them are not. But the, I... I would say this, Jeremy, there's nothing Speaker Phelan can do to make the House Democrats trust Dan Patrick on the other side of the building to be an honest broker about what will end up in that bill when at the end of the regular session, there were things that ended up in there, the things the things I mentioned, that had never been debated in the Senate or in the House, and not to mention that things were in the original Senate bill, like cutting down on the number of polling places in minority neighborhoods in the state, et cetera. And so while Dan Patrick says, I can't believe anybody would say we would do anything racist around here, that was in the language of the Senate bill. And that was before any of the shenanigans at the end of the legislative session. I think you saw where some uh, House Democrats were saying that we just don't trust Patrick. Yeah, I, I asked uh, uh, State Rep. Uh, Gene Wu, uh, who's from Houston, he's a Democrat, I asked him about what Patrick said and how Patrick said he won't let the, you know, cutting the souls to the polls hours again happen. Uh, he won't let the overturning the elections thing happen again. And so I asked Gene Wu and his quote to me was, we don't believe him. And you know, he said, after what happened in the regular session, as like remember, it's like it wasn't just that like they slipped in the souls to the polls thing at the last minute uh, to cut those hours, but they ended up putting twenty three new provisions into that election bill that hadn't been anywhere, you know, prior to you know basically May twenty ninth. They just slipped it in at the last dead moment. And what Gene Wu told me he says, there's no trust left because of what happened then. It's like, and so they don't trust this negotiation process. If they come back, what's to stop the you know Republicans in the Texas House or Senate from putting in? Remember that provision to require people to prove their disability if they wanted to get an you know, an absentee ballot. Uh, they could put in the video recording, uh, you know, allowing you know poll watchers, partisan poll watchers, to video record every voter who comes through the door. Uh, they could put in you know put back in that you know, that part about cutting the polling places in minority communities. You know, they could do all that stuff again and. Right now, it's like as I talk to the you know, House Democrats who are in D.C., they think all that could just be slipped back in again. They just don't trust that the Republicans now are going to, you know, play a fair game on this discussion because they feel like they've been stabbed in the back several times when Republicans were saying, oh, no, we'll listen to you. We listen to you. We listen to you. And then we completely rewrote the bill in dark without you knowing. And we were going to really aim at your communities. And so, like, where's the trust? Mm -hmm. You know, right. And not to mention that on top of that, uh, Governor Abbott has said that there's really no room for compromise with the Democrats on the elections bill. And he's also saying that when they come back, they'll be arrested. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if, what if, a you great want, if you want them to propose. Yes. Right. right. Come back to Texas. We'll arrest you and then we'll negotiate on a bill in which there's nothing to stop us from really just making it the way we want it to look like in yeah. the end. Anyhow. Right. Former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, Democrat of El Paso, was on MSNBC talking about all this and the idea of nationalizing this fight 
over voting rights in Texas. He and this guy, uh, Reverend uh, William Barber, are planning a big march. With they they were billing it sort of like uh, like a Selma, Alabama style march, right, uh, from uh, one of the suburbs uh, around Austin to the Texas Capitol. Here's what Beto had to say about that. Well, those Texas legislators in D.C. have already begun the important work of doing that, providing that moral pressure and leverage on the U.S. Senate and President Biden, for that matter, to pass the For the People Act. That is the the last best hope for voting rights, not just in Texas, but Georgia and Florida and about a dozen other states that have passed voter suppression and voter intimidation measures. But because Texas is the toughest state in which to vote, and it's about to get a lot harder if these new voter suppression bills pass, these are the front lines in, in this battle. And it's why I'm so grateful that the Poor People's Campaign and Bishop Barber have made this the center of their attention because he's absolutely right. Voting is not just connected to our democracy, as essential as that is. It's connected to the fact that Texas still has a $7.25 an hour minimum wage. It's connected to the fact that we're the least insured state in the country where people still die of diabetes and the flu and curable cancers because they can't see a doctor. Seven million eligible Texans did not vote in the 2020 election, and it was not for lack of love of democracy. It's the voter suppression obstacles placed in their way. Jeremy, I think he's doing something important there, and that's this. And people know uh, who have listened to the show or followed my Twitter or looked at what I wrote at quorumreport.com, I haven't always been the biggest Beto O'Rourke fan. You know, as if, and the Beto bots on Twitter, if you say anything that even might be slightly yeah. critical of Beto, man, forget, rip my mentions. They, yeah. they will be on you the rest of the day. Um, but But I'll give him some credit here. He is trying to connect this fight over voting rights to things that I would call uh, eye-level issues, your health care, policing, uh, et cetera, things that actually happen in your community, things you see all around you. I think for a lot of people, and I was talking to some Democrats about this this week, um, for a lot of folks, the fight over voting rights seems very academic. Let me put it this way. For voters, it doesn't even matter because they voted last year. Right. For people who actually vote, they voted. And for the most part, they had no problem. There were some places where they had long lines and things like that. By the time we got to the general election, a lot of that was cleared up. Remember in the primary um, during the Democratic primary race in Texas, long lines, especially in Houston, had been reported. And people will say that that's a form of voter suppression. I would agree with that. Uh, But by the time we got to November and so many accommodations had been made, uh, including three weeks of in-person early voting, uh, 24-hour voting in Houston and uh, the the drive-through voting in Houston, some of those things that Republicans want to pull back on now, um, those things made it very easy to vote. And there is always a tension in this voting rights fight where the Democrats, I think, rightly make the case that no one should be denied the right to vote, just the same way as Republicans would argue that nobody should ever be denied the right to exercise their Second Amendment rights, right? I mean, they went so far with that at the Texas Capitol to argue that there should be no paperwork involved when you carry a gun around in your neighborhood, Yeah. right? When it comes to voting, there should be lots of paperwork. Why is that? Right. I mean, these are both constitutional rights. All right. So maybe try standing up for both. Uh, But Beto is saying, look, the fact that there might be certain people who are underrepresented in Texas because they don't necessarily have. Look, they have the right to vote, but it may be made harder for them to vote, including people who are of color, people who are disabled, et cetera, that if you are somebody elected to state government or to the federal government from Texas, if those people didn't elect you, you're not going to be as responsive to them on their issues, 
Yep. Right. And so he's trying to talk about it in that way, which I think a lot of what I've heard from Democrats about this has been solely focused on whether people have the right to vote, which I think just to an average person seems like more of an academic discussion. But if you start talking about the, the other things that Lieutenant Governor Patrick pushed during the legislative session, think about Patrick saying during that press conference, we just heard him a little while ago, he was saying that I don't th you know, in Texas, we don't want to be divisive. He was the one pushing things like constitutional carry, more abortion legislation, um, other things that are extremely divisive. If you look at polling on that stuff, I mean, these are things that split people down the middle yep. uh, all across the country. Right. So it's, it's very divisive to, to focus on those issues. If you can make this voting rights fight about other things, if you can make it about the fact that your interests are not being represented, you know, on a host of issues in Austin and Washington, I think that's a little more effective. Yeah, and, and interesting. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Beto O'Rourke because you know, look at his involvement in all of this right now. Here is this is this is a a, a statewide candidate who lost his campaign, right? And mm. here he is, you know, using his uh, political state, you know, a spot on the stage uh, and his money to help fund this effort. And how often do you see that in Texas, right? How many top of the ticket Democrats do you see trying to help, you know, down the ticket essentially? In this case, you see, you know, O'Rourke has, you know, not only has he sent $600,000 to, to help pay for the Democrats in D.C., but he's also been going on MSNBC. He's setting up this, this march uh, with the Reverend Barber, uh, who's really well known for this stuff back in North Carolina. He really led yeah. the fight to, you know, oppose the voting legislation out there a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. But the fact that, you know, O'Rourke is doing this kind of open up a what he called the second front. I did an interview with him uh, this week in which he talked about this being the second front that he wants to create to help support what you know, the Texas Democrats are doing in D.C., so the pressure's in D.C., and there's a rally on the steps of the Capitol uh, with a lot of notable national figures. So you can see how this is kind of intertwined into where, like, you know, O'Rourke is, like, helping these, you know, Texas Democrats do what they're doing and sharing his stage, but they're also helping boost O'Rourke, you know, right? They're, they're, they're making him relevant you know, once again, on an issue that he's been trying to talk about for the last couple of years, he's been trying to almost be Stacey Abrams-esque about like, you know, voter rights issues and things like that. And so this is kind of an opportunity for him to kind of ride, you know, the wave of what the Texas Democrats are doing. If he has any interest in running for governor, they've clearly teed him up, you know, to just hit that ball and go with it. Yeah, he's uh, he's being coy about that. And of course, it has the uh, rest of the Democratic field, if, if there is any for a governor or any other statewide office. It's got them frozen right now. Uh, any any uh, candidate on the Democratic side who might want to throw their hat in the ring has to wait on Beto. I'm just thinking out loud here. I wonder if it impacts the Texas fight for voting rights any that the central figure or the best known figure on it um, in this state is a white person. You, know, in, you mentioned Stacey Abrams in Georgia. She, at this point, is seen, you know, is seen by on the left by Democrats, seen as sort of iconic, right? Because of the kind of work that she has done to increase voter turnout by African Americans in Georgia, people of color coming out to vote and trying to navigate the voter laws that they have in Georgia, with, you know, with some real change happening there, right? I mean, they didn't just they didn't do things that just felt good. In Texas so far, Democrats have had a cycle or two where they did some things that felt good but didn't actually have uh, the electoral result that they wanted, 
right? For, yep. for a lot of young Democrats in Texas, and I've said this before, I'll say it again. I'm, I'm, I'm getting to be an old man. I just repeat myself. Um, for a lot of young Democrats in this state, the closest thing that they know uh, to a winning election is one that they still lost to Ted Cruz. Yeah. And that was Beto O'Rourke against Cruz. And Beto, and I've heard some Democrats, not all, certainly, it's probably, I don't know if it's a minority of them, but some Democrats will grumble that it's this white guy that's sort of leading the charge for them when what they want to see is people of color leading the charge on these sorts of things. And they've got to they've gotten to see that over the last couple of weeks with this quorum break with a lot of lawmakers of color making their case. Like we heard from Miss T earlier in the in the show here talking about the right to vote and the fact that they shouldn't have to sacrifice any more, uh, you know, up and to including being arrested for coming back to Texas in the midst of this fight. Now, I say all that to say this in the Texas Senate this week, a black icon was honored by Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and all the Republican and Democratic senators who were there. Uh, Senator Beverly Powell from Fort Worth, um, I believe uh, Opal Lee is her constituent. Opal Lee from Fort Worth, who's 94 years old and is known as the grandmother of Juneteenth. She has been working her whole life, basically, to try to make it a national holiday. And in some ways, um, it's interesting, Texas has led the way on the issue of Juneteenth. Of course, we should because the history of it is shameful, right? It was um, years after, not just a few days after or weeks after or months after, but it was years after the fact that uh, that the slaves had been freed, that they learned that they were freed. They learned about it in Galveston. And it, 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 again, it wasn't. And I saw when people were celebrating Juneteenth online, people posting things about, uh, you know, the freeing of the slaves. It was seemed to be some misconception about that, that people thought that was the day that the slaves were freed. That, that's not it. It's that Texas slaves learned they were freed because the news had been had made its way to Galveston. Right. So so here you have Opal Lee, who's been working on this her whole life. And, you know, when she and her family, when she was, what, 13 years old, moved into a white neighborhood in Fort Worth, there was a mob that destroyed their home. And Dan Patrick talked about that on the Senate floor as they honored her as a civil rights leader, a civil rights icon. In 1939, your house was taken from you. And today and forever, your portrait will hang in the house that is of the people of Texas forever. Patrick took it on himself to say that he was going to recommend that a portrait of Opal Lee should hang in the Texas Senate chamber. Of course, it would hang alongside some Confederate war heroes. It would hang alongside Barbara Jordan, uh, who was, of course, a state senator uh, years ago. By the way, fun trivia. Do you know, can you guess, do you know this? Which state senator holds the seat now that was held by Barbara Jordan when she was a state senator? I would think Boris Miles. No, no, this is a good one. You got to think about how the districts get changed because of redistricting, right? So okay. the actual seat is Larry Taylor oh. from Friendswood. <laughs> Just interesting trivia. Patrick did something I've never seen before. Have you ever seen this? They uh, they had uh, a resolution on the floor to honor Opal Lee, and that's normal. That that's 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 uh, SOP, standard operating procedure in the Senate. And as they were about to adopt the resolution. He had Opal Lee come up onto the dais with him and address the Senate. I've never seen that. Yeah, no, no matter who, no matter who it was. Yeah, never saw it. And before. I would, 
I would say in this case, it's appropriate, right? They're talking about somebody who's a living legend. So here's some of what she had to say when she made her way to the front microphone. You know, I'm flabbergasted. You know, I'm humble. Just know that our getting Juneteenth to be a national holiday is a we thing, not a me thing, but a we thing. And there's so much more to do. So much more. She also talked about uh, the fact that in her, you know, in her opinion, her estimation, there should be uh, health care for all Texans and, and for all Americans uh, and a few other things that things that I don't think Lieutenant Governor Patrick has supported or things that I think you know, I, I'm not sure that he that he thought, knew she was going to say anything like that when he gave her the microphone. Uh, but as all this was unfolding and I thought this is um, uh, really interesting and and just a. It's, it's an exercise in, in, in contrast. Um, only in the Texas Senate would a black icon be honored at the moment a black man is kicked out of the proceedings. Um, as Opal Lee and Lieutenant Governor Patrick were talking, there was this gentleman who's up in the gallery where we have been restricted to as media as well. Up in the gallery, there was a, a black gentleman who was upset about some of the Texas policies that he says are hurting black people. And Patrick had the state troopers removed the guy uh, one of my followers on twitter was in the gallery at the moment captured the video of this guy yelling at dan patrick and uh, you can hear some of what he was saying here about what you are doing sir i'm asking the state trooper sir she is not the last person that will be executed she is not the last person there's a lot there's a lot of african american in this in this country and in the state. I couldn't make out everything that he was upset about, but it was pretty clear, Jeremy, that he's angry about the way that minorities are being treated in Texas. And the gentleman would have a point based on some of the things that we've already talked about during this program and things we've covered in the past and we will continue to cover. Um, I think it's interesting, this, this study in contrast. Here on the floor of the Senate, you have a civil rights leader an icon. I'm saying that a bunch of times, but for a reason, because it's true. I wouldn't apply that to a lot of people. Uh, but a civil rights legend honored on the floor at the same time that an African-American is removed. Some folks said, well, what would you want for them to just leave the guy there to scream at the senators? Well, no, I didn't say that. And I don't think anybody suggested that. But how about this? How about a Senate where things that are oppressive to minorities don't pass in the year 2021? and then honor civil rights leaders on the floor. How about that? How about um, do, how about not just being uh, all talk on one day when you have the legend of the civil rights movement on the floor, and then when she's not there, you, you pass things like getting rid of polling places in minority neighborhoods. How about that? Or any of the things that you were talking about with Gene Wu that he said, you know, ended up in that voting bill that are absolutely uh, the kinds of things that minorities are upset about and not just Democrats, not just Democratic activists, uh, but people who want to be able to exercise their right to vote. Um, how about the cash bail system in Texas, which people will tell you, uh, people who follow this closely will say is absolutely advantageous to rich white people and people who are poor minorities don't have any rights and they end up in jail for quite a long period of time in the county lockup because they don't have the cash to get out even though they're only accused and they haven't been convicted of anything. How about a state that does not have the largest mass incarceration of, of uh, people of color 
on Earth, mostly in facilities that don't have air conditioning. The people in that room, in the Texas Senate, make decisions about those kinds of things. So that guy has a point. So I would say this, if you're going to hang the portrait of Opal Lee in the Texas Senate, maybe that would help with the next generation of senators and the kind of decisions that they would make because the generation of senators who are there now are making decisions in a chamber where Confederate heroes are honored with their portraits on the walls. Yeah. And, and and you see just like in the Texas Senate in this last session, you saw Dan Patrick and the Republican leadership steamroll over the concerns of you know senators like Royce West and Boris Miles on a lot of those issues you talked about. It's like, you know, what they did on the voting bill, particularly, you could just see that, you know, Royce West was trying to work with them and he thought he had been working with them. And then at the last minute, they dropped that surprise on him in the dead of night. Let's remember you know, that hearing was, you know, from, you know, midnight uh, until 6 a.m. It's like they they left Royce West to, you know, fight for the entire black community of Texas at 2 a.m., you know, with nobody there to support him, except for him and Boris Miles having to make the stand. It's like, you know, and I think it's absolutely fair to like, you know, yeah, they can honor, you know, civil rights leaders, but there's a point where it like, maybe you can help honor the message a little bit more if you kind of treat the senators who are from communities of color with a little bit more respect and make sure their concerns are being aired. You know, like I go back to even that, you know, when you go back to when they were trying to push in that piece into the bill, into the voting bill that would allow uh, poll workers to, to video record, you know, people coming into the polling sites. It was the Hispanic and black you know, Democrats who are really raising a lot of concerns about that, they had to go to war to get that out of that bill. As I maybe listen to them in the front end so you don't put them in that position of having to go to war over something that should, that really is offensive to them. And they were making it clear it was offensive to them because of the history of that happening in polling sites back in the 70s. You know, they were explaining that and they weren't being listened to until the very end when they had to do something. I would say that um, a portrait of Opal Lee would be wonderful in the Texas Senate. Another way to honor civil rights leaders is to give them less things to fight about. Yeah. Good How about point. that? Um, <laughs> um, trying to put a button on that. If I sounded aggravated, there's a reason. Um, we're going to watch this space for next week. Um, the temperatures are going to soar across Texas. The, it, once again, the electricity grid is going to be front and center. Hopefully, it will hold up. Just this week, there was a press conference held uh, by the Electric Reliability Council of Texas and the Public Utility Co uh, Commission of Texas. And they're assuring everybody that even though we're going to see uh, not record temperatures or anything, but we're going to see some peak demand next week. That's what the forecast is. They're assuring us all that the lights are going to stay on. The interim CEO at ERCOT is Brad Jones. And remember, at ERCOT and the PUC, they have cleaned house after what happened back in February with the, with the winter storm. One thing that was just demanded by people is mass resignations. People needed to go. They needed new people in there. So this new guy, Brad Jones at ERCOT, he says that we should be good for now, but he concedes there is more need for electricity generation in this state. And there's a lot of implications there that impact stakeholders, customers, and uh, the, the companies that 
generate power. We need more companies coming to Texas to generate power. I have to thank Jeremy that even though electricity is not on the special session agenda right now, which I would think, and this is where uh, Governor Abbott could take a page from Lieutenant Governor Patrick, who I just gave a lot of uh, grief to, he could follow Patrick on this because Patrick's the one saying that it should be on the special session agenda because Patrick knows, and I think he reads the uh, he reads the political landscape better than Abbott does. I've always thought that, that, that look, Texans are worried about this. This is a real thing. We were talking about the idea that for a lot of folks, the voting rights thing may seem sort of academic. There's nothing academic about your lights not turning on and about the heat not working when it's zero degrees in Dallas. Or that, the, or, or that the palm trees on Galveston Island are iced over and people are freezing to death in their cars along the seawall. That was a real thing. And now you get into the summer months where it is going to be a scorcher out there. Of course, once again, this is Texas. This is the normal part. It was not normal to have you know, everything iced over from the panhandle to the Rio Grande. That, that ain't normal. But for it to be hot is normal. Um, and... If we see any rolling blackouts, it's going to completely change the political calculus of what's going on with this special session. Every other thing we're talking about, I think, moves right to the back burner if there are problems with the electricity grid after what happened in February. What do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If there's one thing that, like, you know, the Republicans have to be hoping for uh, is that we don't have any problems, you know, in August with the grid, and we certainly don't have a repeat of you know the winter storms again this winter you know if you have either one of those things it's like you know the the message that the democrats you know had you know coming out of february was pretty clean it was like these guys couldn't keep the lights on it's just like you can run an entire campaign on that's a bumper sticker easily and vote for us we'll make sure you don't freeze to death in your truck it's kind of a you know pretty powerful message and might actually work. Uh, and so you, I, I'm with you. It's like, if I'm Abbott, I might put something on to deal with the grid on every special session from here, here on, just so I can't be accused of not paying enough attention to it. You know, it's like, you want to keep the pressure on, you want to make sure like nobody like messes this up again. And we end up with, you know, every major city without power. You know, that's millions of Texans without electricity in a winter storm. It's like it, 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 it's confounding to even think that that even happened once and that it could actually happen again it is like just chilling. We will uh, keep a close eye on that for you, because I do think, um, like I said, it's 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 a game changer if there's any problem with that grid uh, moving forward. Uh, one other thing here. So much of politics does seem performative um, and I do think that it's gotten worse uh, in recent election cycles and in uh, legislative sessions and what we see coming out of Washington. Um, and I, I saw some commentary from Eric Swalwell, who, who you've uh, heard of, of course, a Democratic representative from California, and he was criticizing Ted Cruz and they criticize each other all the time. So that's yes. not new. I didn't <laughs> think that if he was just if he was just saying that Ted Cruz sucks, I wouldn't think that was interesting. Here's what I thought was interesting about it. He was on a podcast and he was talking about um, a personal interaction he had with Cruz that was a private interaction, which Swalwell wrote about in his new book. And he's talking about it in this discussion. Um, and he's talking about the fact that with Cruz, the way he would act in private is very different from the way he would act in public. If Cruz is on Fox News and he's talking about Eric Swalwell, he would say that guy's a hack. He sucks. 
whatever. But when they're in private, Cruz acknowledges that Swalwell does a good job. That when he was a, uh, an impeachment manager, when the Democrats were going after Trump, that Swalwell did just fine. L- listen to this. I think it's, um, it's really interesting. And he mentions a couple of other Republicans as well, who he accuses of being more performative in their politics. And this may sound crazy, but if you ran into Matt Gates or Ted Cruz or Jim Jordan at the Santa Monica Pier, you would say, these are nice guys. Boy, they're, they're nothing like, you know, what I see them do on Twitter or TV. And I write about this in the book. During the impeachment trial in the Senate, Ted Cruz came up to me, like we bumped into each other in the Senate bathroom. And he said, hey, I, I think you're doing a great job out there. I just want you to know that. And I'm like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? He just scorched me on Fox News like the night before. He tweets at me like every other week. But to him, if you're a pro wrestler, like it doesn't matter that you hit me over the head in the ring with a steel chair. It's all fake, right? You're just doing what the fans want. So I should just be cool with it because he projects onto me what he does. He thinks that I'm just performing as well. And that's what's most sickening is that I don't even know what these guys believe. Like, I really don't. I think he's going a little far to say he doesn't know what they really believe. I mean, for most of the, not all of them, but but for most of the Republican office holders I know, just about all of them, they really do believe the positions that they espouse. They would say that they're fiscal conservatives, social conservatives. They do think those things. But Swalwell is tapping into something I think is important, which is, and this is an, this is one of the effects of living in the politics that Donald Trump left us, all right, this is part of his legacy, is that you have a lot of these folks who are sort of like little Trumps. And how did Trump rise to power? Part of the way that he did it, and it works for some of these guys and not for others. I mean, they're, they're trying to emulate something that doesn't even work for them most of the time. But they, it's all the over-the-top, um, insulting, uh, personal insults of Democrats, trying to own the libs all the time, even if it means that you do something that uh, hurts you in the short term, you would do it, uh, even if it hurts you long term, they would do it in the moment because you got to own the libs. So much of what happens, I think more of this happens on the right right now, but some of it happens on the left too. I don't want to be accused of false equivalence here. I think more of it's happening in the Republican Party where they feel like owning the libs is the most important thing, where, you know, being anti-liberal and anti-democratic is more important than promoting what you actually believe. Um, And here's what I see happening in this whole fight over voting rights right now. One of the things that's happening is I had not seen this before, Jeremy, the level to which members of the Texas legislature are doing some of the same stuff. They are on Twitter and probably doing this on Facebook. I watch Twitter more than any of the other social media uh, platforms. Um, it Personal insults of each other, really just ripping each other a new one every single day, calling each other liars, uh, junior members of the legislature telling senior members of the legislature that they need to get to work um, and things like that that are completely disrespectful. I saw a glimmer of hope late last week when we started to see uh, the Democrats and it was reported, like you said, on the front page of every newspaper, uh, when they started to say that they were testing positive for COVID-19, I saw the Speaker of the House, Dade Phelan, uh, tweet out that he and his wife were praying for the Democrats and hope that they have 
you know, a good health outcome. I saw some other Republicans follow suit on that. Uh, I heard Dan Patrick in his press conference just this week, which we just heard on the show. He was, I think, trying to turn the temperature down a little bit on this stuff and saying, okay, we need to all get to the same table and talk this out. Of course, uh, you know, there are genuine real questions about how much he really means that given his history. I think part of his legacy is similar to Trump's legacy, making things more partisan and more bitter. Um, but this commentary from Swalwell is fascinating because it is sort of an inside look at what goes on with these guys, which is, you know, on, on the one hand, if they see you in person, everything's just fine. I've experienced this myself. And in the media, a lot of the office holders do this all the time, right? They'll insult us. Dan Patrick does it all the time, telling the media they need to do their homework, that we don't know what we're talking about. Members of the House or Senate will tell us we don't know what we're talking about. They'll do that on Twitter. They'll be the keyboard warrior. They'll be angry on social media. But when you see them in person, they're like, hey, Scott, how you doing? Good to see you. Right? It, it, that happens all the time. And so I think a few things about it. One is we didn't really have an interim this last legislative session. COVID kept people from getting together at the Capitol and having meetings and trying to work out issues ahead of time before the legislative session. Even during the legislative session, you had a lot of members of the legislature and media who were not actually in the Capitol on the House floor. As you know, we're still banned from the Senate floor uh, because of COVID restrictions, not able to go in there uh, and really just talk to people one-on-one. -on -one. If all you ever do is performative and it's for social media, and it's for you know getting on Fox News or MSNBC, and you're always insulting the other side, and you're not really sitting down with them and talking to them. But I think the the pandemic exacerbates that. The politics of Trump exacerbates that. And I don't know if we ever get to a point again in this state. It's not to say that we haven't had bitter partisan fights before, but it's a level I hadn't seen it before, uh, where these folks are all the time just so nasty to each other. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think that we, we're not anywhere close to having the stalemate uh, end either over the voting rights legislation. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, that's the question. It's like, you know, when uh, if you start working with the Democrats or if you're uh, a Democrat, and you start working with the Republicans, there's blowback that you're going to hear on Fox News or MSNBC. And, and that just kind of makes that whole conversation more difficult. So it's like it takes more now to kind of break across and work with the other side, realizing that, you know, once you start doing that, somebody's going to be mad at you for doing it and it's going to be within your own party, you know? So it's like, I, I can see why it's so much harder to do now, but boy, the people who can do it, you know, I think there's some relief for the, again, for the, I always think there's 80% of like all the Texans in the middle who aren't watching Fox or MSNBC, you know, and they're, they're just kind of the rest of us, right? You know, it's like, and I, I think those people kind of certainly appreciate the bipartisanship far more than the people on Fox News or MSNBC, you know, think is going to help with ratings. <laughs> so it's, it's much better ratings for Ted Cruz to flame Joe Biden than it is to say, you know, he's doing an okay job on this item. You know, it's like they don't want to hear that. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. If you remember when you know, Dan Crenshaw was on Fox and Friends and they're saying, isn't, you know, Joe Biden doing it all wrong on Syria? And he's like, no, he's actually doing it OK. You know, and it's like you could tell they were immediately. Like, but wait, wait, really? <laughs> it's like that's not why they had them on there for. But like that, that, that just that throwing that even that small bone of, you know, I don't have a problem with what Biden's doing there became a problem. 
you know. Yeah, and and so and and of course, uh, any office holder like that who's going to say anything like that needs to have something ready, an arrow in their uh, quiver, exactly, ready to insult the other side too, because they said something that was nice. So now they have to, you know, make sure that they also insult. Yeah, even them. the score, so that, that doesn't become the news. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Make make that the focus of the interview. All right, that's enough show for this week. It's great to have you back. You look uh, rest. You look rested and ready. Yes, ready to go for more of uh, for the second half of this amazing special session where nothing is happening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, we've talked now for, I think more than an hour and, uh, all of that, uh, is hap- all of that discussion happening at a time when Texas government is at a standstill. So I'm sure next week's show will be just as thrilling. If you enjoy these programs, you know you do. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Sarah, am I right? If they're a subscriber, it'll just pop up on the phone. They don't even have to do anything right? Yeah. Give us the best rating that you can five stars, nothing less than that. The boss doesn't want to see anything less than five stars and write a little review. We, we would love it if you would write a little review, especially about Jeremy. Sure. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com. We'll see you right here next week and do it all over again. Mm-hmm.